Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and welcome uh, to Guy Talk. I mean, brag to your friends and coworkers that you listen to this show. It's the straight shooting hour that makes no outrageous claims, but lose up to 10 pounds in your first week of just listening. That's going to be great. We've got a great uh, power panel tonight, and today uh, we're going to have uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner, Justin Jepson, Tom Brock, and Tom Parrish as the panel, which means uh, the views and opinions opinions expressed by the panel are those of the panel. <laughs> and they do not necessarily mean you will understand or agree with what they say. So that's the plan today. Let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here, Bill. Thanks, Bill. Hi, Bill. So, nice, hey, Bill. so nice to have you back, Justin. We've missed you the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I've, I've missed you as well. It's great to be back together with you all. So we're going to do the reinitiation, and the first question goes to you. Great. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. In Matthew 7, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Please share on this. Wow, that's that's quite the initiating question. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think perhaps this might be the most sobering passage in, in all of the New Testament, and uh, I think for sure within the context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I mean, talk about uh, you know, kind of the kind of wrap. This is right as he's starting to wrap things up um, at the end of his sermon. And I think, yeah, what this is what this is getting at here is that. It's really it's it's impossible to do the will of the Father without being in relationship with the Father. Yep. Uh, so, in other words, um, we can do a lot of different things under the guise um, of, of 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 Christianity, and it, it tells me that someone can have a big platform. They can have a great, you know, uh, a huge audience. They can have videos and tweets that go viral. They can you know, uh, be an incredible preacher. They can be amazingly gifted. And that's, you know, I think Jesus is, is alluding to that because he's talking about prophesying and casting out demons and doing mighty works. So something that's very, you know, de- demonstrative and and uh, uh, very, very visible. Um, and uh, But yet at the same time, what Jesus is getting at um, is that it's, it's, the, it's really the hidden nature. It's the hidden life. It's, it's what's happening at the heart in soul level. It's what's happening from the inside out. And so, um, in other words, we're not going to be entering into the kingdom of God by just simply doing the right things um, and doing Christian actions. It's really about cultivating a life of intimacy with the Father um, in the same way that Jesus lived, you know, 95% of his life in complete obscurity and, and hiddenness. And, um, and I think unless we're content to, to, to start there, um, if and when the Lord does bring us into places where we have high visibility, 
He wants us to be able to have the character um, and the, the type of relationship with the Father that is able to bear the weight of that type of, uh, and to steward that type of ministry and responsibility without being crushed under it, um, which unfortunately we've seen so much of in our, in our culture, in our Christian culture, culture um, here in North America. So, um, again, entrance of the kingdom. It's, it's not about doing mighty works. It's not about saying the right things. It's about having the recognition that I don't have what it takes. Um, I will not, I can never do enough, never be enough. I need to simply come to Jesus as I am, get a regenerated heart, step into relationship with him and um, let him follow, let, let him lead the way as I follow him um, as my good shepherd. If I could give you a PhD, I would, because that really covers yeah, that passage well. Um, yeah. <laughs> some, so I'm, ba- I'm, ba- I'm back in or should I just hang up right now? No, I'm you're, you're back in, in yeah. for now. Well, yeah, I would have thought it was dicey, but sure. Just for now. Yeah, just for now. It's a very conditional in. Don't let it go to your head. No, the hour sure. has just started. You know, I had an interesting okay. experience. No, not uh, going to my head. Yeah. My son was in town over the weekend. And he brought his new German Shepherd puppy. Oh. And the puppy's beautiful. And the puppy followed me everywhere I went. I mean, that puppy, I go to the bathroom and he would whine outside the door you know want to be with me and i love dogs if we think of ourselves almost like that animal in relationship to jesus what does the animal live for the animal lives for the master to come home what does the animal do when the master's home wants to be right there with the master all the time and i think it is that personalization which you were touching on justin that makes all the difference in the world i can know everything about jesus i can preach the best sermons in the world That doesn't mean I really know him. And that, for me, is the telling part down here at the end of these verses. Jesus says, I never knew you. Wow, that's Mm -hmm. scary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed, Parrish. I I think it's that I never knew you piece of it, right? That this is, we we are called to right thinking. And and I know, Justin, you use this kind of phraseology a lot, the idea of right thinking or doctrine that is consistent with God's kingdom. Right thinking is just yeah, the way I think about the world is consistent with how God has wired the world in in his mm-hmm. kingdom. And I want to have that right thinking and have a consistency there. But we are actually called into relationship. To, so to be known is to have yielded your life in such a way that you say, you are my savior, you are my Lord. I want to be in relationship with you. And, and from that place, I want to begin to take on your characteristics. I want to take on your wisdom and your authority and your power and your character and all of that. This is what it means to grow in Christ likeness. You can't grow in Christ-likeness unless you know the Christ with whom you're growing in Christ-likeness. And we're called, the, the, the scriptures talk often about the idea that our life is hid with Christ in God, or we are participating in the divine life. There's all of these different invitations. It doesn't mean that we are divine. It means that we have somehow this incredible invitation, the gift that God provides to participate in the very life of God, the, the divine reality of God we live. I think it's Dallas Willard who says that we live in this co-conspirator relationship, we are, we are conspiring together on behalf of his ever-unfolding kingdom and to call everybody home who would ever want to say yes to this. And so in those places, of course, you're going to get to know each other because you're conspiring together. The Lord, Lord, it might be, well, I recognize something here, but it's not enough for my life. That, that's a different way of, of that, that's inconsistent with Jesus's invitation. Exactly. And I, I would I love, say, if, um, if you oh, look ahead, at Tom, Matthew, if, if you look at Matthew 7, uh, here's these people doing wonderful things, but they're kicked out of the kingdom. Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And I think that's key. Uh, how do I know if I know the Lord and if I'm saved? Well, we all sin, but are you a worker of lawlessness, or do you fight your lawlessness, and do you repent, and do, do you 
battle of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think here were these people that were, you know, God can use anybody to do miracles. God, the devil can do miracles. So just because somebody can do a miracle doesn't mean they're from the Lord. I mean, Mary Baker Eddy of Christian Science supposedly could heal people, and maybe she could, but, you know, the Bible talks about Satan appearing as an angel of light and having powers. So the, 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 the key is not, can you preach a good sermon or can you cast out demons? Do you know him yeah. or are you a worker of lawlessness? And again, uh, we're not, I think that we got to always maintain two things. Number one, we're saved by grace alone and not by our good deeds, Ephesians 2. But the second thing we have to maintain is that if you're truly saved by grace alone, it does change the way you live your life. You still sin in thought, word, and deed daily, but you repent. You're generally moving toward the Lord and not away from him. And if, I mean, the, the other thing this, this verse teaches is that not everybody's going to get into the kingdom. I mean, a lot of Christians today think that, you know, just as long as you uh, believe in God, you're getting to heaven. <laughs> that is not the teaching of this verse. There is a, a fight to, uh, to be fought. And uh, again, we're saved by grace alone. But if you are saved by grace, you can't work lawlessness in the sense that you're living an impenitent lifestyle. Well, there might be some people who identify as Christian because they need to identify as something, and they don't consider themselves Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist, so they call themselves right. a Christian, and they may identify yeah. by that, but they have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Because, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of that, I think, that goes on. You know, people identify with the community they're in, but that doesn't mean they know, know the master of the community. And, and I think there's a big difference between being in relationship with ideas about God's kingdom and being in relationship with God himself. And I think that's sort of the line of demarcation in terms of I, I might have some ideas about what this whole thing is about, but that is not the invitation. The invitation is to have said yes to a relationship. Now, to, Brock, I'm glad you brought up what you did. That I would hate to confuse the listeners to be able to say, well, then you better have this perfect, beautiful, active, loving life kind of thing. No, of course, it's going to be a struggle here on out. The only question that really is in front of us is if somebody asks you, are you following Jesus? And however stumbling you may answer yes to that question, that's that's the question. It, the, the, it, Jesus said, follow me. And and you have two options on that one, yes or no. And <laughs> and how that plays itself out is going to you know really be different. And it's going to be a struggle and pain and suffering. I mean, I was just talking to my students in class today. Why do we think when we sign up for discipleship that we're suddenly going to be master disciples for moment one? I mean, those guys were a bunch of zoos for the first several years. They were spending every single day with Jesus. And yet a couple years in, they're like, so, Jesus, who gets to hang out in your left hand and on your right hand when we take over Rome again? Because I want power. <laughs> it's like they spent two years with the guy and they didn't know what he was about at that point. So being a disciple of Jesus means that over time we grow in wisdom and stature and power and character and authority as his spirit does the work in our life that is possible because of the regenerated heart, we get set free from the powers of sin and death so that we can increasingly grow and be formed at that point. That's just the beginning to say yes. It's not like, oh, I'm totally formed now at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the way, if I could add one more thing, that the way Jesus, you know, I think sets this in context in the way that he relates with his disciples. And I love there's a picture of this in Mark uh, chapter 3. I think it's in verse 15 that says this is when Jesus calls the 12 from among the crowd. Of, of those that were following him. And uh, he said that he called them up to the mountain, those whom he desired. And then here's, here's the key. It says, so that they might be with him and mm. that he would send them out to preach and to cast out demons. And so that idea is that being with Jesus has to be first. 
Um, and, and, and any true ministry that it's in accordance with the will of the Father has to be from the fruit of intimacy. And, you know, uh, uh, an author and, uh, that really has influenced my thinking on this, and I think, you, you know, we've talked about him. I think he's been a faith rated before, but uh, uh, Sky Jathani wrote, wrote a book called With, or Reimagining the Way That, that we, we Relate to God. And mm-hmm. in it, he, he describes several different postures and how people relate to God, that we can relate to God, you know, above God, essentially, that, you know, I'm on my own God and he serves my purpose, that I can relate to God as under God, you know, where he's kind of like this tyrant and, and I just need to kind of appease him and live a life that hopefully pleases him, live a life from God. Essentially, he's kind of my cosmic vending machine. If I do the right things, I'll get the right things from him. But the thing that I think we struggle with, that I struggle with the most, and I think a lot of, I've seen a lot of Christians and, and students in particular, is we try to live a life for God. And we use that phrase a lot, for God. I want to do this for God. I'm doing this for God. And he said, but, but if that, sometimes how do we know where to, when am I doing enough? Am I doing, am I doing this for you? Am I doing this for myself? And I think he, he sets it in the right context, I believe, and coming from that, this space in Mark, 13, in Mark 3, that we need to live a life with God. And I think when you think about the end of Matthew, what's the Great Commission, right? The greatest thing that we could ever do for God, if you think about it that way. But Jesus sets it in context again, after he gives the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, he says, behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. And so even the Great Commission isn't something we go do for Jesus. It's something that we do with Jesus. Mm, yes. And so I think, I think that makes all the difference. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount. All right. I only prepared one question for today, so we'll go to break, and when we come back, we'll have 40 minutes of elevator music. (laughs) Unless there's listeners that want to give us questions. Let me know what they are. 877-933-2484. Any question you might have about the Bible, a verse you've struggled with for years, something you don't understand, I've got uh, quality and quantity here for you today. Let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. Guy Talk. We'll be right back. back with Guide Talk. Let me know what questions you might have. 877-933-2484. Here's a little sports talk. Peter, you just oh, per- yeah, perked just up a little bit. I'm ready. All right. Last Sunday after the uh, the game uh, between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the New Orleans Saints, there was a beautiful on-the-field uh, discussion and warm hug between Drew Brees and Tom Brady, like genuine friends who cared about each other, admired each other, loved each other. And, of course, uh, Breeze's kids were on the field, and Brady's throwing them touchdown passes. It's amazing. It was such a tender moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's the way it should be. Talk about sportsmanship. Just a great illustration of it. Well, there there was a classiness associated with that, right? I mean, they they have been brutal competitors on the field. And and I do think when we think about raising our kids to both uh, want to do as well as you possibly can while being gracious in so doing. And, And I think that just was so representative of that on the field. and. In our culture these days, we're sort of taught to just keep everything kind of dumbed down and keep everything tamped down, and mm-hmm. you you don't want to be aggressive. And young boys in particular are, are taught these days to not really just go for it kind of thing. But can we teach both the go for it part of it while also having this classy gentleman kind of approach to the whole thing? And the two of them clearly represented that on the yeah. field. And, and those things are not inconsistent with God's kingdom to just absolutely go for something. But what would be is if you just want to you know completely destroy the other person and leave them 
flat on the field. Clearly, those two didn't do that with one another. And the video we watched was kind of a cell phone <clears throat> secret video. It wasn't right. being filmed for TV. It was just somebody caught that exchange with their cell phone and put it up on the internet, and it was it was beautiful. Well, and I think what's nice about that, Bill, when you catch secret video like that, we're always, and I know, and Justin and I were talking about this thing yesterday, about one of the objections that people have to Christianity from time to time, but it's also maybe the most common objection, is that of hypocrisy, the idea that what's going on uh, outside of public view is different than what's being presented. And so there, there's just this, this sort of trust level that's gained when you can see what's going on behind the scenes in someone's life. And I think it's an invitation for all of us to be who we actually are, whether in public or in private. That's not an easy thing to do, but it is so delightful. I think people really respond, which is why that video, I understand it's not in a Christian setting, but that video gained, I think, just such widespread applause because these people really are the real deal in this context. I think people are yeah. just so longing right. for the real deal. Okay, let me jump back into some questions. I got listeners lighting up the text line here, which is great. Uh, here's a question. Is there two Gospels, one for the Jew, one for the Gentile? I was told Paul never told Gentiles to repent that the kingdom of God is for the Jews and grace for the Gentiles. Are they the same gospel? Well, there's yeah, only one. The same gospel. There's, there's only there one gospel. A, yeah, go ahead, Tom. Well, yeah, there's only one gospel, and it is both for the Jews and the Gentiles. And you're right. Uh, we, although we don't have direct examples of calling the Gentiles to repentance, uh, believe me, Gentiles have been repenting ever since if we want Jesus into our life, because that's how you enter the kingdom of God, when you recognize your sinful nature and your need for what Jesus can offer. So uh, I know there's only one gospel, and only through that gospel of Jesus will people be saved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some strange—Messianic I, I, Judaism is fine. These are Jews who are completed Jews, and they believe in Christ as their mm-hmm. Messiah. But there are some Jewish Christian groups that are just uh, cult-like— and you don't pray the Lord's Prayer because that was for the Jews. What? You know, and, and they have this strange teaching that, certain, that uh, you know, it, it's just, uh, we, we maintain, uh, where does Paul say he has two different Gospels? And, and then there are, there are some teachers that are off who are teaching things like, I think, that Galatians says, you know, that was, uh, written, you know, it's it's just the whole New Testament is for everybody, Jew and Gentile. And you know, yes, Paul did keep uh, Jewish customs, but he didn't insist on that for the Gentiles. But the same gospel is spelled out in First Corinthians 15: Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead. Paul doesn't say, but for you Jews, you got to do A, B, C, D. In fact, he wrote the whole book of Galatians to say that it's the same gospel. Yeah, yeah, I think repentance yeah. is—go uh, ahead, Justin. No, I was just going to say, you know, I, I just was thinking of Romans one sixteen. you know, for the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and then here's kind of the order of, of, of the recipients of the gospel for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. So it's it's a both and, but just as Jesus came to the first to the lost house of Israel, as he said, but he was very clear, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Mm-hmm. And so—and I think we, we, we see that kind of— um, getting fleshed out in the early church where Paul started talking with the Jews. It was this custom to go to the synagogue every, every, every Saturday and explain and, and persuade the Jews that Jesus is, was, is the Christ. And, um, but if finally he said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going off to the, Gen- I'm going to the Gentiles, Peter, you hang out with the, 
you know, you, you focus on the Jews, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, and I'm going to go bring the gospel to where it's never been preached. And so it's the same gospel. It's, there's only one good news because there's only one Jesus. Yeah, same gospel, absolutely. And, and repentance is one of the hallmarks of anybody who decides to follow Jesus. And I think to the extent that we might see an emphasis on repentance within Jewish context in the scriptures, it would be along the lines of the idea that the Jews specifically had all throughout their history and in their stories, and they were the keepers of God's story, and they had this idea of the Messiah coming, and they had made up their mind that the Messiah needed to look like X, and and X was going to be the Messiah who would help them restore this earthly kingdom that would overthrow the oppressive governments of the day, whether it be Babylon or Assyria or Rome or whatever it might happen to be. And they decided that because Jesus didn't do that when he rode down the mountainside on the, on the donkey and was going to, in their minds, finally face the Roman oppression and overthrow it, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. So they, they made up their mind that he wasn't the Messiah. So to repent just simply means to change your mind. And I would suggest that maybe the reason why we see such a focus on repentance specifically within the text as it's being addressed to these early Jewish followers of Jesus, saying you need to change your mind, Jewish people, about what you thought this Messiah was about, because look, his kingdom is exploding among the Gentiles as well. So change your mind about what your expectations were. It doesn't mean we're not called to repent, but I think that some of the emphasis we see in the Scripture is because of that very specific dynamic. Above average interesting. Really nice. (laughs) All of you. (laughs) All right, uh, here's... uh, for Mamie, I hope you don't mind a gal butting in on the guy talk, but I'm reading through Genesis, and I've always wondered, I've always wondered why men such as Isaac in the Old Testament had multiple wives and concubines that they would have children with. I don't know why this is not adultery and why they wouldn't uh, have been allowed. Go ahead, Tom Brock, answer that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's a hard one. I mean, that's a hard one. You know, you gotta you gotta uh, distinguish between prescriptive and descriptive scripture. Yes. Prescriptive is do this, don't do that. Uh, descriptive just de- defines you know what is, whether you like it or not. There's lots of de- you know David committing adultery, committing murder. There's lots of stuff described in scripture, but never says that God likes it. And so the ideal is in the Garden of Eden, uh, Jesus reiterates this in what, Matthew 18, Mm -hmm. one man, one woman. That's the ideal. But then you get that messed up throughout the rest of the Bible. But, you know, then there's one more thing we need to throw in. There was the law that if your brother dies without children, Mm -hmm. you are required to raise up children for him from his wife. Now, what do you do with that? Some of the, you know, this this had to deal, I, do I think, with uh, Jews having a land and everybody got to keep their land and, and, and within their tribe. But some of this stuff is hard. But I would just say the the ideal is one man, one woman. God allowed the uh, uh, concubines, but it never says he liked it. All right, we'll take a little break. A lot more guy talk coming up. Let me know what the questions are. Be right back with the panel in just a couple minutes.
back with Guide Talk. Some great questions coming in. I am so blessed every day to sit in front of a microphone and to be able to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question that came in from Rachel, she said, I'm curious how Jesus spoke to hundreds or thousands of people at one time, and they were able to hear him in the days long before microphones. <laughs> what was going on then? Well, I, I've had the chance to go to Israel and I actually went to the Sea of Galilee and the Mount, uh, where the Sermon on the Mount would have likely have taken place. It's actually a little surprising acoustically. Okay. I mean, it really is. You can really, it's almost amphitheater-like. I don't see any problem why people wouldn't be able to hear him in, in, in that moment. There so are just places that, like that. I've seen totally, those in the geography of the land. Yeah. It amplifies it. I can't explain it, it's but it does. Deal. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? All right. This is going to be uh, a little bit trickier one. This is a question for the power panel I about baptism. I was raised Missouri Synod and taught that infants should be baptized as quickly as possible. Now I have a nine-month-old granddaughter who still isn't baptized, and it's breaking my heart. I'm hoping I can glean some good information from the guys. Thanks so much. Hmm. <laughs> I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran, and... I, I do believe in infant baptism, and I would get the ba- the kid baptized. We're all born in sin. We're infected with original sin. Uh, so, yeah, I'd get the child baptized, and um, I, I believe, as Lutherans do and Catholics and Episcopalians, that baptism is more than symbolic. God actually does stuff in baptism. So, yeah, I'd get the child baptized. I'm a little nervous. Though. I mean, somebody told me about, yeah, there's a Lutheran Missouri Synod Church down down the street, everybody thinks they're going to heaven there because they were baptized. So we got to also not overdo baptism. I mean, Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. And it drives me a little crazy when you go to a a funeral and this guy hasn't been in church for 50 years, but the pastor puts him in heaven because he was baptized. And, (laughs) you know, baptism is the beginning of the Christian life. It's not the end of the Christian life. Uh, but that's why we have confirmation in the Lutheran Church. You, you grow up and you confirm your faith in Christ. And you continue to walk with Him. But I think you know Hitler was baptized. Mussolini was baptized. We don't think they made it. And you need to continue in Christ to be saved. Let me read my disclaimer again: the views and op- opinions expressed by the panel <laughs> are those of the panel. Do not necessarily. <laughs> Reflect the position of the station here. Well, there's another Lutheran on the panel here. Why don't I dip into this one? Um, I do believe strongly in the covenant of baptism, much like the Old Testament covenant of circumcision. There is something the Lord is doing that we don't fully understand. Now, part of the Lutheran liturgy with baptism talks about salvation, that you are, are saved through baptism. And the scripture actually says that. You know, I think Peter said in First Peter that language is used. But the danger here is this, that we put the emphasis on the baptism without understanding the maker of the covenant. The maker of the covenant is Jesus. And if we don't respond to him personally, now I believe children can respond. Look at, look at uh, John the Baptist in his mother's womb leaping when Jesus came into his presence in Mary. But it is a misnomer to believe that just because you were baptized, you're saved. And so I would say to this woman, pray for your grandchild. But hear this, Jesus is more concerned about your grandchild's salvation than you are or your daughter or your son-in-law's because he knows how to reach that child and he'll do everything in his power to make sure that child is saved, whether that child is baptized now or not. And now Mariano Rivero coming into the ninth inning to save the game, Peter Kapsner. Well, <laughs> I wasn't even warmed up. Uh, That's okay. I, 
Now, I, you know, there's this is obviously an issue in which people have differences of opinion in terms of how they understand the efficacy or the effectiveness of baptism. And, and I guess coming from the perspective of a theological mutt uh, in this and, and having a, a variety of backgrounds, my best understanding of the situation is that, it would, first of all, it would be helpful to study a bit about baptism in the Jewish faith and, and the practice of it there. Uh, infant baptism was then also practiced in the early church to some degree, but only in the context of when an entire household was being baptized. And it was about the 5th century that we really see the origins of infant baptism as we understand it today really take off in momentum. And there was two factors that really kind of raised it to the forefront of church practice. One of the factors was that many children, babies, were dying in some of these Roman villages. There were plagues going through, there were sicknesses going through, and it created sort of this existential crisis, and people were very concerned. And they say, what's going to happen to my child? Mm-hmm. Where do they go when they die? It really became this huge question of the 5th century. And you combine that with, at that time, one of the leading theological figures of the day was a guy by the name of St. Augustine, who he had an idea of the human soul that it really was totally depraved. Now, that was his view. There are many other views of the, uh, of the soul. Most of them would say, yes, sin is absolutely present. But he went to a place with this that said that the human heart was 100% depraved. Thus, the answer to the question of all of these babies dying is that they do go to hell. And so the church then instituted baptism as a means by which parents and families could feel like their child is going to end up going to heaven as a result of baptism. Now, does that have merit? Does that not have merit? A lot of people have disagreed with that over the years. And Brock has already brought up some of the problems at that point of view, but mm-hmm. also some of the potential wisdom in that view as well. I do know the Catholic Church in 1960 that has held to that view historically did change their view. They, they actually changed within the canon of their writings that infant, unbaptized infants will go to hell. They changed it to unbaptized infants are left in the hands of the grace of God. Oh. And it was, this, I mean, this is 60 years old. This is after 1,500 years of church practice, theology, understanding. The Catholic Church actually changed all that. My own grand, grandmother had 12 children, three of which died before they had a chance to be baptized. And they were baptized out, or they were buried outside of the Catholic cemetery at that time. When Vatican II Council in 1960 changed the language, people were digging up their loved ones and reburying them back in the cemetery. So this is a thorny issue. Mm-hmm. This is a sensitive issue. There's a lot there. But as you know, this the counsel for the woman, could she get her child baptized? I don't see any problem with that. I have nothing against infant baptism. The Covenant Church practices both infant and believer baptism. But at the same time, I think it's helpful to look back in our theological history and say, so when did this start getting practiced and why? And it's primarily 5th century stuff related to wondering where our children would go, combined with Augustinian theology that everybody is totally depraved. It kind of just led to a pretty interesting confluence of events. Mm-hmm. Can we use the word dedication I think a lot of baptism? Of, I think a lot of parents do that. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And, and I think even baptism, like what Brock was saying, baptism with confirmation combined kind of is that dedication approach. It is that when the child gets to be of the age where they can make a decision for themselves, they will confirm that which their parents did on their behalf in baptism. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of some of this that goes together. If you look at the early church and you had many of those Christians were Jewish in origin or Gentiles that were familiar with Judaism, when did a Jewish male become part of the covenant community? On the eighth day. Yeah, right. When he was circumcised. Of course. Now, what could that eight-day-old child know about the kingdom of God? Exactly. And, but the whole point is all the prophets say, hey, you were circumcised. They took that very seriously. And I think the problem we have is this. Intellectually, it doesn't fit with our thinking about a child could in some way respond spiritually or have spiritual growth put in them. But let's face it, uh, not everybody who was circumcised served Israel and served uh, Yahweh properly. 
and many of them were, were lost or destroyed. I believe the same thing is true when I talk about infant baptism as well as adult. I think there are a lot of adults that are baptized that go through the motions because they get pushed by their family. What I always get concerned with is that uh, when I see uh, people pushing uh, baptism only for believers, and then you've got six-year-olds getting baptized. Now, can a six-year-old believe? Sure. Can a two-week-old believe? Yeah, I think they can. But it's only up to the Lord and how he knows how to do that. Because the problem is if you don't understand it that way, then faith isn't something that's a gift to us. It's something we produce. I think your circumcision example is a really good one, Tom, on that, that it's being done precognitive, pre-memory to to young boys in this case, and they identified with the faith at that point as a result of it. But it's an example where Paul then ends up saying later, right, that he had all of the proper rites and rituals as part of his life. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the right tribe, of the right background, all of that. And then he says what? But all of those things I consider lost now compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, which is what the point that we're trying. However, we understand we know baptism is something that we're supposed to do. However, we understand it within the theological stream in which we live. We know we're supposed to do it. But the point at the end of the day still is about that ongoing relationship with Jesus. Mm -hmm. 007. If people want to. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Justin. No, I I think so much ground has already been covered. But I, I think just going back to. Um, this woman's, you know, she's, I think the phrase she said, and it's killing me, you know, or just the remorse or um, that the, those difficult, you know, feelings, emotions that she's dealing with. I think to distinguish between, is she feeling that because she's viewing the baptism as a means to a connection to a church community, uh, to a family of faith, or is she viewing it as a means to this child's salvation? Um, because I think, I think what's clear is that, you know, baptism, I think, at least in the West, in the North American particular, I think we we can view it as such an individualistic thing in terms of what this is doing for that that individual person or this child, which it includes that. But I think when you look at the, the scriptural meaning of baptism, it's, it's about our identification not only with Jesus as the head of the body, but it's about our identification with with the church. And, and, and I mean that by, you know, more capital C, but certainly there's different local expressions or different versions of that. And so I, mean, I think the importance of that is that this is a, a, a parent and a family that's committed to raising their child um, within the context of a family of faith, because um, we cannot grow up and live in light of the, the fullness of, of the kingdom life in isolation or in disconnection from um, a community of faith. And I think that's one of the, you know, amongst all the other different things of, of what baptism means, it's already been, you know, I think so well talked about already from the other from the other guys. I think we need to view it in, in the context of our, our dependence upon Jesus as our Savior. Baptism doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. Amen. Um, but, but also, it also indicates our interdependence on the family of faith, because we're baptized into one body, the Scripture says. And so I think, um, so I think that'd be helpful to, to have a sense of comfort that if this, this woman's worried about the salvation uh, of her child, that her getting uh, her child baptized isn't going to fix that, you know. Um, but getting this child baptized in terms of their of her conviction of being connected to a community of faith, I think that's that gives a, a level of comfort and support of knowing, you know, what I'm not raising this child all by myself. 
um, I'm doing this with, with the help of other brothers and sisters in Christ. There, there is the verse, though, in First Peter 3 that says, Baptism now saves you. And I'm just—I I would just say, everybody, that's that's a verse you all want to look up, study it. I mean, I—I I was raised Lutheran. I came very close to becoming a Baptist when in college, and the, what I was <laughs> a near miss. I don't want to make you laugh. I would, wow! I, I would encourage people if you go. All right, John MacArthur is very Baptist, and he believes infant baptism is very unbiblical. R.C. Spruill was uh, a Reformed Presbyterian type, thought infant baptism was great. You can go to YouTube, type in John MacArthur, R.C. Spruill, baptism, and you'll get their debate. And that might be a, a, an interesting thing for you to do, just to get both sides and go back and forth. Uh, you know, it's worth your time. Here's another uh, addition to this discussion with regards to it of baptism. Uh, here on Guy Talk, which I love Guy Talk, by the way. That's what the listener said. I, I think of the verse 1 Corinthians one fourteen, where Paul says, I thank God that I did not baptize many of you. And he points to the crucifixion of Christ instead as the finished work. What do you guys think? I just read that verse yesterday. I actually did some study on that. And uh, Paul's pointing out there that they were identifying. I'm I'm a Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of so and so. I'm of Jesus. And he says, I I don't remember baptize. Well, I do remember baptizing two of you. Well, I may have baptized this family, but in terms of that ongoing, that was not my drive. My drive was to do nothing except Jesus Christ and and Him among you. And I think that's the drive for all of us. That's where we need to go, whether or not. We're baptized as infants or adults. The bottom line is, do you know Jesus? And I think too often uh, we get satisfied when people make a statement about Jesus, if they're adults or they're baptized as infants, without helping them really probe that and see if that becomes a lifestyle. If it's not a lifestyle, if it's not pursuing Jesus because you love him uh, and he's your motivation, then like I've got a cousin who's been baptized seven times in every different church, and it's not going to make any difference. It's a good balance. We don't want to overdo baptism, but we don't want to underdo it either. Mm-hmm. And when when I I, mean, I remember in college, just you know, one of the young women, well, I'm not baptized, but I believe in Jesus. And I, it's like, wait a minute, in the New Testament, everybody got baptized. It's not like like you have a decision on whether you're going to get baptized or not. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and go you therefore baptizing them. You know, so I I, I think we can underdo. The importance of baptism, and we can overdo it as well. Mm-hmm. Tom, I need to go to break here, but I just want to revisit because the listener has chimed in on the second half, the last half of that verse you quoted. I think it was out of First Peter, where baptism saves. It's not baptism uh, that removes dirt, but an answer to one's conscience. Yeah, but look more careful. Uh, get a real, get the ESV, and it, here it goes like this. A baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of through Christ. Yeah, it's not just the removing of dirt by water. That's true. But it does say the words, baptism now saves you, and we've got to ask the question, what does that mean? And some of the versions don't, don't literally translate it, and it kind of bugs me. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a little break. We've got uh, more time with the power panel. Awfully glad to have you uh, send more questions over if you have time. Interest, 877-93-FAITH. Be right back.
back with Guy Talk. Stirring the pot a little bit today, which is okay. Uh, Peter, you had an additional thing to say about uh, the tradition um, ritual of baptism. Well, yeah, I think, yeah, I think like many of these things that we experience and see and read about in the New Testament and in the early church, it it, it didn't suddenly just emerge post-Jesus and among the early followers. It, it had its origins and, and its practice in Old Testament life. And so in, in a similar way that we understand Jesus's final sacrifice on the, clo- uh, on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and the shedding of blood, that had its origins all throughout the Old Testament with the sacrificial system. And there really was a sense in which the sins of the community were forgiven as a result of the shedding of the blood in the Days of Atonement and Yom Kippur and all of what was celebrated. The difference was is that when Jesus finished his work, now it is finished. Now it is done. Hebrews is very uh, very clear all throughout, mm-hmm. especially Hebrews 8 through 10, that here's the difference. What Jesus did is different than that. Well, baptism functions much in the same way. It wasn't this new mm-hmm. ritual, as I just said. It had its origins all throughout Jewish life in this practice called mikvah, where for a variety of reasons, the Jews were invited to go into the ceremonial waters to move from unclean to clean. Sometimes it was just something as purely physical as seeing women work through their menstrual cycle. They would then head at, at the end of each menstrual cycle into the waters of mikvah to go from what was sure. considered to be ritually unclean to clean. And so the point of the mikvah was to go from, uh, uh, again, unclean to clean. And then that, that took on a different meaning in the waters of repentance where there's a sense in which you have been made unclean by sin. And so we're going to go through into the waters of baptism, be made clean, and then space is going to be created for you for the spirit to now dwell in your life, in your regenerated heart. So what was going on in those waters was simply a symbolic expression of what God was going to actually do within all of you. I think the question we're asking in the panel today is, do you have to have baptism in order for that to happen, is that God's only means and mechanism by which to regenerate a person's heart? Mm-hmm. And and I would say no. I mean, I think there's very clear evidence that God can regenerate the heart when people say, yes, I will decide to follow, and they give up their life in that way. So it, it just, it's just interesting yeah. to me to study the origins of these things and mm-hmm. see kind of where they came from and some of the meaning mm-hmm. behind them. Can I add one thing real quick, too, as I was thinking about, because I you know a lot of that first Peter verse gets brought up a lot, I think, in this discussion, and, and, and Tom, I don't know, just one thought I had on that, you know, and I, I'm sure that there's, you've studied this passage and you being older and wiser and more godly than I am, have probably a good other response. But let me, Wait, let which me at least, time are you I think talking only about? one for three on that one, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm talking to, to uh, yes, to both, both Toms, to collective, collective Toms, Tom squared. Um, no, but I think that, I think it's really important. And you brought up having a good translation and I think this, that's, that's really vital here because it doesn't just, it doesn't just say baptism saves you. It says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And you think corresponds to what? Well, it's talking about Noah and the ark and how God brought Noah and his family safely through really the, the waters of judgment that, and, and his wrath that he cleansed the earth with. And, you know, I think, again, the, the, what this is pointing to is not the act itself of baptism saving you, but, but the God who is in charge of the means and the ends, that ultimately baptism, mm-hmm. now when say corresponds to this, really what baptism corresponds to is the cross. So in other words, baptism doesn't give the meaning to the cross. It's ultimately the cross that gives meaning to the baptism. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think that's where, you know, even Paul talks about, you know, and this is, you know, that baptism language in the Old Testament is so key that that, that, that language is used for knowing the flood that's used for Moses leading the Israel through the passage of the Red Sea, you know, that type of thing. It's, it's talking about God's saving work um, on behalf of his people. And ultimately, without the cross, baptism is meaningless uh, in, in light of the New Testament under the New Covenant. Indeed. An older, Every, everybody, 
everybody should read Romans 6, which teaches we are baptized into the death of Christ. So does the death of Christ save, save us? Yes. Does baptism save us? Yes, in the sense that we are baptized into the saving death of Christ. I, I have one quick story. I had an older Baptist pastor, and I was a young pastor. We had a pastor's conference and from the community, and this topic came up, the very topic we're talking about. And afterward, he and I went to lunch, and he says, let me explain to you what this really means. And he pulled out a sheet of paper, and he drew the, the pearly gates going into heaven. He says, after you enter the pearly gates, there'll be a next set of gate that you have to go through, and that's re-education on baptism. And he said, here's, here's the door for the Roman Catholics. Here's the door for the Lutherans. Here's the door for the Methodists. Uh-huh. You know, and then he stopped, and he looked at me, smiled, and he goes, and here's the door for the Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine how many doors like that are going to be in heaven, right? Oh I mean, we just see through a glass darkly it here. Was great. Yes, indeed. That's brilliant. That's All right, so here's true. here's a question. I love this one. This is from David. I'm 80 years old, and most of my time is spent in the house. Uh, maybe an hour at the gym, church on Sunday, and our small group. But at times, I still have it in the back of my mind. Scripture tells me to get to work, and I really don't want to go out and do things. <laughs> well, well, I think I want to hang out with David. I do that too. sounds great. David, we got to hang. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> well, just remember, David, uh, uh, Moses was 80 years old when the Lord called him to lead the children <laughs> of Israel you know, out of Egypt. Right. So maybe there's a big plan for you. Well, I think the only passage I know of that talks about uh, work and, and, and the goodness of work from the New Testament standpoint comes out of Thessalonians. And, and I think we always have to be a little bit careful to make universal principles out of what Paul is writing to a community. And in that particular cir- circumstance, the Thessalonians, had completely given up doing anything in life because they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was going to return any moment. So they're like, we're just going to hang out. You know, we're, we're not going to do anything anymore because Jesus is coming back. And Paul is like, hang on just a minute. Mm-hmm. So the admonition, admonition for work in that context is you don't really know the hour of the day or the time when, when the Son of Man will be returning. So please don't just, you know, stop your work on, on behalf of this. Yeah. Here's another question and Brock or 007 answer. My family teases me about being a vegetarian, but it seems that God originally created us that way. No animals were killed in the Garden of Eden until after sin, and I don't think animals will be killed in heaven, so we won't, won't, so won't we all be vegan in heaven? Can I? Yeah, that's a, I love that question. My wife is a vegan, um, but she eats eggs, so she essentially doesn't eat anything that had a face, so that's her phrase. But we, we, we jokingly... We jokingly go back and forth on this because she says, I'm actually more biblical, you know, because you know, we're not going to be eating meat in heaven because there'll be no death in heaven. And I'm like, okay, sure. Well, and there wasn't any meat in the Garden of Eden because God didn't give uh, us permission to eat animals until he put the fear of man in animals after the flood in Genesis 9. So, um, but yet Jesus ate meat. So that's what I always go to. I'm like, well, Jesus ate meat, so I can eat meat too. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I, but and, I think I, God, this is one of those... What's that? Doesn't God give us permission? Uh, I think it's before the flood, isn't it? Where God gives us no, permission. No, it's, after, it's after the flood. It's after the Is flood. It? Okay. It's, it's, it's well, I, I could be wrong. No, I would trust I'm the guy with the vegan yeah. wife at this point. Yeah, the conversations you've had, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I think that's the you know the the, the scripture calls this the adiaphora, the matters of an, you know and the matters of difference here. Um, all, all we know is in heaven. Are we all going to be vegan? Okay, sure, maybe, but we do know that in heaven, you know, our, our happiness isn't going to be defined by how much bacon we can have, you know, with our <laughs> with our pancakes. And, it it, it is. It, it's going <laughs> to yeah. the marriage supper of the lamb is going to be, you know, wonderful and far beyond our comprehension. So um, I could say more on that, but I'll give room for Tom to respond. Well, I, I don't understand because plants are living things. Aren't you destroying a living thing by also eating a plant? 
So I, I have no guilt at all having a hamburger. And uh, God, Paul says, Paul, Paul, Paul He's eating one right says, now. Uh, Paul says, beware of people that tell you you can't eat certain things. God has made all things richly for us to enjoy. And he's talking about food, he's mm-hmm. talking about marriage, and he's talking against the people that are saying, well, you can't eat certain things and you shouldn't get married, etc." Hmm. When the enjoy, when the vision... Yeah. Gentlemen, yeah. thank you so much. We're out of time. And we started this topic a little too late because I still have lots of uh, questions and comments coming in. Uh, this is a ah, this is a very uh, challenging issue on baptism. So maybe we can resume it next time we, we meet uh, because another great question that came in and a great comment. So I think this is uh, to be mined at a later date, hopefully next Thursday when we uh, reconvene. That's all for Guide Talk. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with me. And uh, sharing your wisdom with my listeners. Thank you, Bill. Uh, It was great. That wraps it up. We're going to do Deep Thinker Thursday coming up next with John and Pam Bloom. That's all ahead. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.